On location in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus then and now. In this series, Mike, geographically, we seem to be darting about all over the place. We've spent a fair amount of time around the Sea of Galilee, but we've come quite far north now to what is known in the Bible as Caesarea Philippi. I mean, what sort of distance have we come, actually, from the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, we've travelled about 25 miles north of that very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee from that area where Bethsaida would have been up into the foothills of Mount Hermon, as you say, to this place that in the New Testament is known as Caesarea Philippi, where some really significant things happened. What's it known as now, this place? Today, it's known as Banias, uh, with a history that goes back, change the Arabic B to a P, Panias, Pan, the god Pan, the nature god Pan. And that helps set in context some of the history of this place and also why it would be so significant for what Jesus would do here. A little bit of background will will help us understand that. Originally, this area was called Balinas in honour of that Old Testament god Baal. This area was called Baal Hermon. It's referred to as such in the Old Testament. Mount Hermon, we've spoken about, just to our north. Baal, the nature god, the fertility god. And this area became constantly known as an area of worship of fertility gods through the Greek and Roman period. Why? Well, because the melting snows of Mount Hermon and the mountain range around melt, trickle through the rocks and actually burst out through this great big cave just alongside us here. And this is one of the major sources of supply of the River Jordan. So it became very much a place of, wow, this is where, in pagan thinking, the gods are providing for us. So Baal Hermon in the Old Testament, in the Greek period, when Greece invaded in the 4th century under Alexander the Great, that's when they changed its name to Panias in honour of the Greek fertility god Pan, and began to build um, a a grotto here uh, over this cave where the water uh, breaks out from the rock. And beginning right back in the 3rd century BC, we know that sacrifices were being cast into the cave as offerings to the god Pan, that half-man, half-goat figure who's often depicted as playing a lute. And just as we look to the right of this big cave mouth, David, you can see there are niches carved out into the rock. Mm. And in those niches, statues of various gods were placed where people came to worship. So we've had an Old Testament background. We've had a Greek background still focusing on a fertility god. Now, that develops in the Roman period, because when Rome conquered this area in 63 BC and put Herod the Great in charge of this area, Herod decided to build a great temple there. He built it right in front of that large mouth of the cave there and built a temple 
right over it and over the flowing water. Still to this day, we've just looked down and seen the channels that the water flowed under. So really putting the temple right there, trying to get as much of this fertility, as it were, hmm. into the temple as possible. Now, when Herod the Great died, his empire was divided up between his sons. Rome decided it didn't just want one ruler. And this area came under the rule of one of his sons, Herod Philip. And at that point, he changed the name of this place once again to the name we've got in the New Testament, Caesarea Philippi. Right. Caesarea in honour of Caesar. Philippi in honour of, oh yes, himself, <laughs> Philip. So we're at the centre of a whole mixture of religions, particularly fertility religions. This was a buzzing place for worship of different types of God in the New Testament times. And it's to this place that Jesus makes this journey. We've just found him in Bethsaida that we've looked at in a previous episode, and he brings his disciples up here in the midst of a mixed religious scenario, pretty much like much of Europe today. And here in this mixture of religion, he'll ask them some of the most searching questions that anyone can ever be asked. And where will we find that event in the Bible then? Well, we're going to read it from uh, Matthew chapter 16, though you'll also find it in Mark and Luke. And I think probably the best thing we can do, as we've done in other places, is to read the story and hear it for ourselves, first of all. And as we read it, let's remember that the backdrop to Jesus asking the questions that he does is that rock face behind us with the cave from which water was rushing, niches cut in the rock with these different gods and a whole history of gods being acknowledged as nature gods under different names and so on. So here's a story from Matthew 16, Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Son of man, of course, one of his favorite expressions for referring to himself. And the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. 
And Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of men, of humans. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? So that quite remarkable exchange happened here or somewhere near here, Caesarea Philippi, well north of the Sea of Galilee. That conversation between Jesus and his disciples would have happened as you say, for a reason here and in the timeline of the story of Jesus at a particular time. But let's just, just focus in then on, on, on the fact that it happened here. Do you know, and if we use perhaps a modern term for it, really what you've got here is religious pluralism, which sounds a bit of a mouthful, doesn't it? But it's, we're in a place of pick and mix religion. We're in a place of religion of your own creating. Have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that's why this story and these questions that, that Jesus asks is so powerful. Because really in those niches that we've seen carved in the rock where different gods would have been and where people could come and choose whichever god they want it, because really, they, you know, they were all part of the one great God who provides everything, weren't they? Jesus is really forcing them to consider the issue. Am I just one of many? Am I just another of these gods who's here in the rocks? And so the challenge for them and for us will be, do you see me as utterly unique or do you see me simply as one of many? And that question is one of several questions. And any question that Jesus asks is an important question. But what is their reply to that? Well, you know, he goes through a whole number of questions here, didn't he? You probably saw them um, uh, as we went. And he, he sort of, I love his technique here. You know, he just starts with that general one. Um, how do people see me? Who do people say that I am. And you know what? By this stage of his ministry, when he'd been doing so many miracles and so much great teaching, particularly down there by the Sea of Galilee, there were lots of different ideas going around about him. And the disciples say, well, something you're John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist brought back from the dead. Uh, others are saying you're Elijah. Why? Because there was an expectation that Elijah would reappear before Messiah came. Uh, others are saying that you are one of the prophets. In other words, there was a whole variety of confused ideas about Jesus. That's why I think this story is so powerful still for us today, because today there are so many confused ideas about Jesus and it's almost as if well you know make a Jesus of your own creation whichever it is it's okay make him just one of many other good religious teachers it's okay it could come across as like Jesus sounding as if he's a bit concerned about his reputation what do people you know what do people think about <laughs> it could but you know uh, it's clear from the gospels Jesus had no concern for his reputation 
in fact, his reputation was already rubbish as far as people like the scribes and Pharisees were concerned. So that is not the point. He's not asking, you know, what do people think about me? How many likes have I got on Facebook this week? It's a question to get them to start thinking about who Jesus is. And he does it in the context of saying, okay, so what are other people saying? And then after that, he's going to ask this second question. Okay, it's interesting to know what others are saying, but here's now the most important question he could ask them, and actually the most important question that he can still ask any of us today. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? David, who do you say that I am? Mike, who do you say that I am? In a pluralistic religious culture where anything goes and where you're not expected to push one line any harder than any others, it's okay for you to have your beliefs, but please let me have my beliefs and my truth too, and your truth can't trump my truth. Jesus is actually putting a question here that forces them to decide. Come on. Who do you say I am against that background noise? And in our world today, as that question is posed to us, what kind of replies would Jesus get? Well, I think he'd get a whole variety of replies, wouldn't he? From atheists, he'd get your figment of people's imagination used to manipulate people and keep them down. From agnostics, he'd probably get a, do you know what, I don't really know. I can see you were a good guy, a good bloke, but I don't know much more than that. Even among Christians, you are going to get different answers because while it's easy for us to say, yes, you are Jesus, the Son of God, it's then very easy for us to paint that Jesus in a way that suits our own character, our own circumstances, our own social situation. One of the things that I find is increasingly challenging for us as Christians these days is that as our culture, which is increasingly secular in the West and in the UK, as that becomes more and more secular, the pressure on Christians is to take away the distinctiveness of Jesus, to want to make Jesus more reasonable. You really can't believe that in this day and age, can you? You honestly cannot believe that Jesus would want to say things like, keep yourself to your wife and not sleep around. Come on, this is the 21st century. We're in a civilized culture now. We're, in a, we're liberated, we're free. And the great pressure on Christians is... You know, when Jesus asks us that question, is for us to give a quick and glib answer without understanding the implications of what we're giving, which is exactly, of course, what Peter would go on to do. He's been following this guy around for, what, perhaps the past 18 months, couple of years. We don't know the time scale right. He's been hearing his teaching. He's been seeing his miracles. He's been seeing more and more of who it is. And it's as if here at this moment of challenge, the penny drops for him. And he says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. Remember, Messiah and Christ are the same word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. Christ is not Jesus' second name. You are Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's like, he's got it. And we know he's got it. 
because of what Jesus goes on to say. Blessed to you, Simon, son of Jonah, because do you know what? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. A reminder there that ultimately when the penny drops, it's because God opens our eyes. That's why if we're praying for non-Christian friends or family to see who Jesus is, we need to be praying not only that they would pursue this investigation into him, but that God would also open their eyes. And Jesus says, you've got it, Peter. You've seen it. You've seen who I am. And you know what? On that sort of confession, a confession that sees me as the Messiah, the Son of God, I can do anything. I can build anything. And this promise there to build his church upon the rock. Some see that as a promise specifically for Peter and being given the power of the keys, the promise of being the first pope. Others see it as a more generalized promise, a promise to anyone who makes that confession Jesus can use and build his church with and on. And we've called this particular conversation his question, but it sounds like it's actually <laughs> his questions. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's another stonking question going to come. You know, who do people say that I am? Important. Who do you say that I am? Wow, crucial, even more important. But then there's a sort of another question that, Jesus is going to ask, but he's going to ask it not by asking a question, but by making a statement. And he's going to see how they respond to it. So here in this place where powerful gods are remembered, powerful gods of nature, and Peter's just said, yeah, these are nothing. You're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. Jesus is going to go on to say something, well, really, that Peter cannot compute at all. Matthew tells us that from that time on, which time? This time when Peter saw who Jesus was, that he truly was the Messiah, the Son of God. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day rise again. Now, Peter, at this point, can't get this because he takes him aside and began to rebuke him. Hello, hang on. One minute he's just said, Lord, mm. and now he's trying to rebuke Jesus, put him straight. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Now, what's going on there? Well, of course, Peter still had in mind at this point the traditional understanding of who and what Messiah was. In Jewish thinking, the Messiah was going to be that God-appointed, God-anointed man that God would send to raise an army, defeat the conquering Romans who were in charge of the land at that time, defeat them, drive them out, and whom God would use to set up the kingdom of God on earth. So it was very much a Messiah with a sword. And it's as if Peter is saying it, no, no, hang on a minute, Jesus, look. You said, who do people say I am? I said, this, this, this. You then said, who do you say I am? And I said, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And you said, well done, you've got it. And now you've just gone off on a tangent and talked about suffering and being crucified and being put to death. Jesus, you've got this wrong. 
because he still wanted a Jesus to fit into his picture of who Jesus should be. And that's why we get this really stark reminder, get behind me, Satan. Mm. Oh, my goodness, just a few minutes ago, he was calling him blessed. Now he's calling him Satan. Get behind me. The, the Greek there means get behind me and line up with me. Get in line with me. Line up with my thinking. Not get out of my way. Not at all. It's line up with me. You've, you've got your thinking wrong. Okay, you've seen who I am. But you know what? Now you need to start to line up your life with whom I say I am and with what I have come to do. And again, I find that hugely challenging for us in our culture today because there is so much pressure for us to make a Jesus that our culture will accept. But you know what? If you're going to strip Jesus away of all the stuff he said about himself and all the stuff he calls us to a, as a life of radical discipleship, frankly, you might as well give up on Jesus and just find someone else to follow because an emaciated Jesus like that is really no Jesus at all. And that's what he was trying to get Peter to see. Because otherwise, all Peter was doing was putting Jesus in one of those niches over there, just behind us, David. Just another one of many. Whereas the point of bringing his disciples here was to get them to see there is no one like Jesus. He is utterly unique. He is the Son of God incarnate on earth. And as such, he makes both promises and calls upon our life that make him different and the way of life of those who follow him different from anyone and everyone else. So if I've heard you correctly, I think the questions that Jesus seems to be asking would be, who do people say that I am? How do you see me? And are you seeing me right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Those are still three important questions today. How do people see Jesus today? Well, in a whole variety of ways. But Jesus says, okay, but listen, this is the most crucial question in life. Who do you say that I am? Still today, for everyone listening to this episode, here's the question of Jesus to you. Who do you say that I am? You can't prevaricate. You can't make me one of many, one of many prophets, one of many gods, one of many equals. Put me in one of those niches over there in the rock face. Who do you say I am? Because there is only one answer that receives God's blessing. It's when we're able to say, not just as words, but with all our heart, I've recognized that you are indeed God's promised one. That one promised throughout the Old Testament whom God was going to send to both deal with our sin through your death on the cross and to bring to fulfillment that promise that goes right back to Abraham to build a people for yourself who would inhabit the earth and your new kingdom. So who do you say that I am? And in responding to that, are you responding, are we responding to Jesus correctly or are we saying, yeah, Jesus, I do recognize you as the Christ, but I'm but I want to shape you to my culture because, you know, when I'm in my workplace, my mates say to me, ah, oh, you can't possibly believe that as a Christian, can you? Get in the 21st century, get with it, man. And there are so many issues where we are challenged today to give up on the radicalness 
of Jesus. And he was radical. He was radical then. He's still meant to be radical today. Do you know what? If our Jesus isn't radical, I'm not sure we've found the right Jesus yet. If our Jesus doesn't make us uncomfortable at times, I'm not sure we've found the right Jesus yet. If our Jesus doesn't sometimes make us think, oh my goodness, you want me to do what? Then I'm not sure we've found the right Jesus yet. He's just another statue in those niches in the rock face behind us there. I noticed you said that for Peter the kind of penny dropped, but in a sense it hadn't completely dropped. No, and you know what? I think that's true for all of us in our life, isn't it? The penny does drop. But then we discovered there's an awful lot more pennies to drop as well. This is what makes the Christian life a journey, what makes it so exciting. We never get to the point of getting it all. Uh, I've been a Christian for decades now, and you know what? I'm still not only just learning things in the Bible, I am still constantly challenged about attitudes, about lifestyle, about choices and decisions, about what I do with my life and my money and my home. And if that's not constantly happening to us, then I'm not sure we have still found Jesus because his questions to us are constant, not in terms of rebuke and trying to catch us out, but rather in terms of, come on, come on, enticing us on to take the next step in the adventure and the journey with him. I'm thinking of anyone listening whose wife, partner, husband, boyfriend, whatever, hasn't made that step of faith, wouldn't call themselves a Christian. They are, and I'm sure, you know, they will be praying for them and hoping one day that might happen. But for whom the penny hasn't dropped, from your pastoral background as a pastor in a church, you know, what thoughts come to mind as you think of these questions in that context? Well, I think first of all, I would say keep praying for your partner, your spouse, whoever it might be, your family member, forgot to open their eyes. Don't forget that bit. You're not just praying for them to see, you're praying for God to do a miracle. You're praying for God to break through. And I have seen the most ardent opponents of God turned round in a moment when God has broken in. So keep praying for God to open their eyes. And second, keep living out for Jesus in the best way that you're able to. But you know, we win and woo people ultimately not by being the same as them, but by letting them see that Jesus has changed our life. That's why I stress so much, please don't let our Christian faith be shaped by our culture. One, because what our culture thinks is right will have changed in five years time, 10 years time. And two, because if we let our Christian faith be shaped by our culture, you know, what have we got to offer people? All we're saying is, actually, you're right. You know, your beliefs and your way of doing things are the best after all, and Jesus is just a cherry on top of the cake. No, he's not. He's one who calls us to decide, and in deciding, to follow him on this journey, on this adventure of deciding who he is and what will that mean for how he lives. Will we just make him another God to put in one of those niches in the rock behind us? Or will we truly say and live out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as you look across at those ruins, the hint of history long gone, and yet here we are in the natural landscape surrounded by trees and the sound of water flowing still from those springs coming down from Mount Hermon, not too far away from us. Uh, what does this sort of location 
make you reflect when you think of that story of Jesus here in this area asking those questions and the response that ultimately he got from Peter with Peter's life? I suppose the thing that impacts me in coming here is that uh, religious pluralism is no new thing. It's not a 21st century invention. It's always been around. It was the big issue in the Old Testament. Who are you going to worship? Baal or Yahweh and of course what a lot of God's people were trying to do was to say well can we have a mixture of both please and the answer has always been no and the answer here at Banias with this water pouring out reminder of the nature gods with the niches in the rocks and the different gods that would have been worshipped there with the ruins of Herod's temple there yeah signs of religious pluralism all around so our 21st century religious pluralism is nothing new and the challenge to have to decide in a context of religious pluralism is nothing new. So it just brings home for me the question, you know, who do you say I am? Jesus can be the only one. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if we truly believe that, then this place reminds me we can't reduce him to one of many. He is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. For anyone listening who is seriously considering these same questions from Jesus, perhaps you could pray for those in that situation and, and pray for us. Lord Jesus, in a world of religious pluralism, of pick and mix religion, and pseudo-spirituality. Help us as we read the Gospels to see you for who you really are. And for those who don't yet know you, to take that step of faith and saying, Lord, uh, I might not understand everything, but I think I've seen enough to commit my life to you and to start the journey. And for those who've walked with you for many years, help us, we pray, not to let you become one of many or for our faith to be shaped by our culture, but rather like Peter, to both say and to live out that you alone are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB Player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises. Bible surprises.